0: Coming up on the Upon a Dream podcast, former Disney animator and Imagineer Lan Cicero. Plus, we take a look at Frontierland in a new edition of A Walk in the Park.
1: Imagination,
0: imagination. Your attention, please. <laughs> now loading
1: on track number one for a trip around Walt Disney's Magic Kingdom. Welcome to the Upon a Dream podcast. All aboard! A journey through yesterday, tomorrow, and fantasy.
0: Now here's your host, Jonathan Glissmeyer. Hello and welcome. Thanks for making time for the podcast where we explore the history of Disneyland through stories and sound. My name is Jonathan. If you want to get in touch with the show... You can find all the episodes on our website, which is upon dreampod.com. The show can also be found on most podcasting platforms, including iHeartRadio, Spotify, and of course, Apple Podcasts. If you want to leave any feedback to be on the show, the phone number 503-877-9020. That's 503-877-9020. Of course, you can track the podcast down on social media. We're on Instagram, Facebook. And Twitter. Just look up the Upon a Dream podcast. And lastly, if you have a question, you can also email uponadreampod at gmail.com. I'm very excited about this episode. Of course, we will have our walk in the park segment. Uh, this week, we're going to take a closer look at Frontierland. So that's coming up later in the show. But first, we have a great guest this week. He started in Disney Animation. He attended CalArts with people like Tim Burton and John Lasseter, who, of course, is best known for his work with both Disney and Pixar. Uh, Our guest later transitioned into Imagineering, and all in all, he spent over 30 years working for Disney, so uh, a lot of knowledge to pick up on. It was a very interesting conversation. I don't want to wait any longer. Here's Joe Lancicero. Away we go. Hi, it's Joe. Hey, Joe, how you doing? It's Jonathan.
1: Jonathan, how are you today?
0: Oh, uh, you know I'm doing all right. How are you doing?
1: I'm all right too. You know, considering the circumstances.
0: Yeah, yeah. There's a there's a <laughs> quite a bit going on in uh, 2020, I guess.
1: Oh my God, that that, that is the understatement of the century.
0: <laughs> well, given everything that is going on right now, um, I definitely want to thank you for giving me a little of your time.
1: Oh, it's my pleasure. It really is. Um, Especially, like I, I mentioned in, uh, in email, I think uh, if you do take this in kind of the direction, I think you're taking it. It, it sounds like it's, you know, it, it might be a different approach to a lot of stuff that's out there. I mean, I got to be honest with you, I do a lot of these podcasts and, sure. and interviews. I've probably This is probably the at least the, at least a dozen of them, um, and uh, each time I try to challenge myself to find a little different angle. Or you know a different story. I mean, the good news is I I was at Disney for almost 40 years, and I was really fortunate to do a lot of different projects and all over the world, in in Asia and in Europe and domestically. So um, I got a lot to uh, you know a lot a lot of uh, a lot to cho- you know to choose from in terms of what I want to want to focus on.
0: Yeah, sure. So. You you definitely have a lot to draw from for sure. It's kind of funny because the last person that I uh, Talked to a couple weeks ago. He was an Imagineer, um, late '80s through the '90s. And when I originally had emailed him, he was he was like, "I'd be happy to do it, but good luck on finding some stuff that have, hasn't been covered before." And it is true, you know, a lot of it's been yeah. covered. But
1: yeah, but I mean, everybody everybody brings their own point of view to it, you sure. know. Um, we all, you know, and our own war stories <laughs> from the trenches. Can I can I uh, ask who who it was you spoke uh, with?
0: Bob Berenick.
1: Oh Bob, yeah. yes, I I worked with Bob. He he did a lot of stuff that actually we worked a little bit on uh, Splash Mountain at Disneyland. Okay. Um, he uh, he worked with Tony Bax. Tony was actually pretty instrumental in getting me over to Imagineering. and then Bob worked closely. But you know, there there were I don't want to call them camps, but there were definitely you know groups within WDI, especially back in the late late eighties and the nineties, you know, there was kind of the, the Disneyland group and then the Euro Disney group came out of that and then of course the the Asia group. I guess they always had kind of, kind of um the way they organized the, the 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 different um the different parks, you know, in terms of creative leaders and the people that, that worked with them.
0: Joe went from CalArts to Disney animation to Disney Imagineering. So given all of his experience with the company, I had to know what drew him into animation.
1: You know, from as long as I can remember, um, as far back as I can remember, I loved to draw. And I remember, and I, you know, I grew up in, I was born in 56. (laughs) And, um, you know, so this was post-World War II. And it was a very, very optimistic time, you know. Um, I grew up in suburbia like you know in Burbank California Um, and uh, I grew up in the shadows of the studio you know Walt Walt Disney Studio was there and um, you know the Sunday night ritual of watching Uncle Walt and um, you know Disneyland had opened a year before I was born Um, oh and a a quick aside little interesting story my father and his brothers were in the arcade business they had moved from new york um in the early 50s um mostly because of the opportunities on the west coast in the aerospace and movie industry but initially and they ultimately they all kind of branched out into into either of those two industries but initially they were um they had this arcade business it was called brothers arcade and they um they installed and maintained and distributed um you know coin-operated games, like those old old shooting gallery games and those little rocking horses that you saw in front of supermarkets and such. So um, they were actually contracted in, uh, in 1955 to install the Davy Crockett arcade in Frontierland. And of course, this was before I was born, but my dad always told me the story, especially years on after I became an Imagineer and I was involved. You know, he always thought it was interesting that, you know, he was actually part of the installation of the original park. And um and then my mother always told me the story about how my dad would come back from from doing his work down at, at Disneyland and we and complained about two things. One, he said, you know, they wouldn't allow him to bring his equipment um in the back of his truck to the actual work site in Frontierland. That I guess because they were trying to keep the site dust free, he had to he had to load it into carts that were pulled by donkeys. <laughs> and I think those were ultimately little, the little donkeys that they used or mules that they used for um, the, the nature wonderland area. But then the second thing he would always say, and my, my mom would laugh about, you know, after the fact, um, both my mom and my dad, they grew up in New York, and their only frame of reference for amusement parks and and the kind of thing that they thought walt was doing was coney island you know and coney island was roller coasters and you know the the shoot the shoots and steeplechase park and all that crazy stuff and my dad would tell my mom he said this guy with disney's crazy he's gonna fail miserably he there's no roller coasters he said there's not a ferris wheel in there he says i don't know what this guy's thinking
0: it's funny too because i mean that it I don't think that was an uncommon thought at the time, from, yeah. from, from what I can tell. I mean, a lot of people seem to think this whole idea of Disneyland was uh, quite a, a crazy concept
1: so you know i heard I heard it for, firsthand and you know and it all and, and ultimately we all know it, it was a testament to Walt's genius and his insight and his tenacity to you know and and belief in himself and what he was doing that you know drove this and his ability to convince others that it was the right thing to do that you know with what looked like on the surface is this giant disaster and it was filled with all this risk you know ultimately he knew in his heart of hearts that you know he had something you know and that something you know was the the whole immersive storytelling piece of it you know that he wasn't looking at it as a as an amusement park where you went for thrills he was looking at it as an experience that immersed you into his stories, all the stories that he loved, you know, and, um, and it was brilliant enough, you know, to have the, the, you know, to tie it into the Sunday night show where he actually used the references that ultimately ended up or ended up uh, inspiring the park. So i getting back to your original question. I'm kind of going around, around the block here a couple of times, but the, uh, you know, growing up in Southern California, watching Disney on Sunday nights. And even before going to the park, you know, there, there was the Sunday night show that talked about, you know, what he was building out there. And even after it was built, I mean, he continued to use the Sunday night show as a, a promotion. And then growing up, there was at least once or twice a year, you know, we made our yearly pr- pil- pilgrimage to the park. And, um, you know, it was just kind of a natural thing for me. I was, I was, I, I loved Disney storytelling. I also, I I just, I loved cartoons and the crazy energy of the cartoons I love the Warner Brothers stuff I'm so thrilled that HBO is bringing them back <laughs> the old Looney Tunes um, but I also love the beauty and the subtlety that Disney had in you know in their storytelling and theirs their cartoons so between the two it was, um, I, it was it wasn't even like a choice for me I just I it was something in me that I just had had to follow. And then through a series of, of, you know, kind of serendipitous circumstances, I, I found myself at Cal arts in the first class of the character animation program with some pretty amazing classmates, like, you know, John Lasseter went on to do, do uh well, he started Pixar and the did toy story. And I mean, literally, I think changed the animation world by, by what he did. And other classmates were John Musker who wrote little mermaid and, uh, Hercules and you know went on to do multitude of great films there um yeah so but at the time we were just a bunch of young kids who you know loved animation loved Disney storytelling loved to draw and really didn't realize that you know we, we had the potential to go out there and really make a, a difference in the world and I think for a lot of us I and I certainly don't don't Equate myself to, the, to those gentlemen in terms of the, the huge impact they had, but I do feel like I, in my own way I had had an impact on on Disney and um, and look, and look, looking back, you know, I, I feel very fortunate that I had had the opportunity to do do that. Um, and there were people that believed in me along the way too that really made a big difference.
0: You mentioned some of the names that uh, you attended Cal Art School with. Obviously, sometimes when you're in something that's kind of special, it's hard to really recognize it at the time. Um, so, talk a little bit about that experience, looking back on it.
1: Well, it was it was a really interesting time because the 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 program at Cal Arts was started as an acknowledgement that um, most of the the old animators, um, you know, they, they called them, you know, Walt called them his nine old men. Sure. Um, and they had either they were either retiring or obviously getting pretty old and some of them had passed away. And even prior to the program at CalArts, they had they had started a recruitment program. There was one wave of recruitments that came in before our wave of um of graduates from, from CalArts. Um as as they were trying to rebuild the um the animation department there. But um, it was a time of, I think, a lot. There was a lot of turmoil because there were a lot of, a lot of different factions there. They had some of the kind of, I, I'm going to call them the second tier old guys, <laughs> because there was there was the you know the the nine old men, Frank Thomas, Holly Johnson, you know Milt Call, um, Willie Reitherman, those guys that really were the pioneers. Those were the guys that created the art form and took it to an unbelievable level. But then there was kind of the second tier of people that worked under them. And in some ways, you know, as the older guy, as the nine old men either faded away or left, retired, as I said earlier, the second guard were trying to make their mark. And um, and I think they felt a little, they didn't kind of think, they were threatened by all this young, incredible, crazy energy that was coming in from, you know, Cal arts and, and elsewhere. Um, so it was, it was a strange time, you know, and some of those early, the, 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 the you know, the, the post Walt films that transitioned into the films that were, um, influenced by and had a lot of these young people were kind of a mixed bag because they were, they, they were trying to hold on to the old, but trying to try, try new things. Um, so like I said, there was a lot of internal struggles going on and and unfortunately, I think there were some casualties of great talent that kind of went unnoticed because of that one in particular of course was Tim Burton um who was was in our class, actually the class below me a cal arts, and I, I got to be pretty good friends with with tim and um you know, and I remember when we were working on the Black cauldron. Um, which everybody had high hopes for because, you know, it was this grand fantasy piece of literature and with all these interesting characters. But, and um, Tim had done some amazing, amazing character designs and has all these crazy ideas for the horn King. And he scared the hell out of, out (laughs) of the directors. Um, They didn't know what to do with him. You know, all of us who knew Tim and all the us who saw the potential what the film could be, thought oh my god this could just kick it over the top and um but unfortunately he was kind of pushed out because of that and i think that's a good example of kind of what was going on at that at that time um you know the good news is that ultimately it, it found its way um i think a lot a lot to do with when um when peter schneider came in uh as the head of animation after uh uh the uh the new guard of, of uh, Michael Eisner and Frank Wells came on and they knew that the department they they saw the potential there and they knew they knew it could be something great and I think bringing a Broadway guy on a a, a theatrical guy was the smartest thing they could do and then he in turn Peter Snyder of course brought in like Howard Ashman and Alan Menken um and I think that was the, that's really what turned the turned the whole thing around um in in a way it 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 brought kind of a new kind of fresh life to it but it just also renewed what was great about those old films too about you know focusing more on character focusing more on the emotion of the characters and the emotion of the storytelling that I think was was kind of getting lost because there were there were too concerned about trying to you know more about technique and less about the emotion and the storytelling and and, uh, that, that to me was the big turnaround.
0: All right. So then you get a shot to move over to the parks and work with Disney Imagineering. How does, uh, how does that opportunity come about?
1: You know, this actually ties into the, the whole climate that I was just describing in, in the animation department at the time. Um, there was still a lot, there was a lot of, um, even after it was kind of starting to find its way, and I think the film that kind of was the turning point was The Great Mouse Detective, um, there were still different factions within the animation department, some that, that wanted to you know, embrace a more, I'm going to say, cartoony style versus something a little more sophisticated. And, and that was also the time when Peter Snyder first came in, and he was still trying to find his way too. They were, and at the time there was a they, they called it a, the Special Projects Unit that was uh, experimenting with some short film ideas. And one of the things they were asked to do was develop this project called um, Who Framed Roger Rabbit. And um, I got put into that Special Projects Unit and um, got really excited about. It. And initially, um, it was all going to be animated in the United States, and then they brought the the great British animation director Richard Williams on to um to direct it and direct the animation p- portion of it. bob zemeckis directed of course the the live action portion and um and so they were going to move uh the all the animation to, to london and there was a moment there where i was scheduled to go to london and work on the animation and for various reasons that fell that fell through well at the same time i had become friends with tony baxter um through another through another mutual friend and um and I was showing Tony some of the craze because I, after after the Roger Rabbit thing didn't happen, I was put into a little development group for a while, and we were just just trying to come up with ideas for shorts and for for other um, kind of alternative stuff to the the features. And uh, I was showing, I was sharing with Tony what I was doing, and he said, "Geez, you know what? We need your kind of thinking at Imagineering." Basically and I even hate to say this, you know, he was comparing me or what I was doing to what Mark brought to Mark Davis brought to, um, you know, the park in the early sixties, you know, Walt, Walt brought Mark in to basically add some humor and that kind of animation touch to a lot of what was already in the park and then ultimately develop, develop new things. He had, you know, and Mark's, of course, biggest strength was his, his ability to, tell an amazing story you know with a couple with a couple characters staged brilliantly um, and not that I not that I could ever ever even claim to get close to what Mark did but I understood what Mark did and I understood what they needed so Tony said hey maybe you want to think about coming over here and you know and I'm always up to, for a challenge and like I said I grew up with this incredible love for the parks and always and always loved the park. Um, and so, yeah, I, I went over there kind of with an open mind about, well, I'll see if this works out or not. I could, I could, and I didn't burn a bridge. I was really open with the people in animation and they were great about it. Um, gentleman Don Hahn, who went on to, to produce Beauty and the Beast and so many other great things. He's still a friend, friend to this day. Um, actually encouraged me at the time, said, yeah, you know, give it a try. Um, and so I did, and you know what? I never looked back because, um, as I said earlier, I was given so many great opportunities. I was I was in uh, Imagineering for just just about a year and a half when they they gave me the opportunity to um, be the lead designer for Toontown. So imagine, I think I was only thirty thirty two or thirty three at the time, and. I was going to be in charge of a, an entire new land for Disneyland. I remember the day after I spoke with um, or they, they they called me in and they spoke to me about, about the assignment. I just, I went home that night. And I just, I sat in my, in my big comfy chair in the living room. And I was like, it just, it sunk in what that really meant. And then, then there was this moment of panic, um, but the panic soon went away because I was so excited and I was so naive as was a lot of the, The um, not naive, but, you know, when when you when you're new to something and it was just all about the possibilities, you know, and and we were kind of a B team that was working on on Toontown because they were in the throes of uh, trying to finish up Euro Disneyland. And it was also the start of the Disney decade. So they were finishing up the Studio at Walt at uh, Walt Disney World. Um, I think Animal Kingdom was just getting going. So we were just kinda of, they said, well, you know, it was me and about six other designers and this great producer, um Dave Burkhart, um, who's probably one of my one of one of my most treasured partners and a great mentor. I learned so much from Dave. Um he's just ten years older than me, but he felt like an old sage to me, and um, and so you know between Dave and I and this this small group of designers, we were kind of left on our own only because they were distracted by all these other big things. <laughs> and being being young and energetic, and um, I don't want to say naive because we we had a strong vision, we knew what we were doing. It's just that we didn't know it, what couldn't be done. And sure. um, and we dived into it, and that 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 was a really rare opportunity so that that's the long story how I, how I went from animation to to uh imagineering and in in a short time really got you know it was that first big opportunity that that kind of kind of um kind of sealed my fate <laughs> there was no turning back then <laughs>
0: Yeah, it's kind of interesting that you said that cuz I I used to work in uh sports radio and you know, it's like sometimes the young team is like the dangerous one cuz they don't know any better, like when they've right. been on the big <laughs> <Yeah>. stage. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Yeah. So, um what was so once you made that transition, I mean, was that was that something that was pretty natural or how did it how did it differ kind of designing concepts versus doing animation?
1: Um you know, because I guess like I towards the end of my my career in animation, I had started moving into, um, you know, development, coming, working with that small group and coming up with ideas for short films and things. Um, and that was actually a big part of our training um, at Cal Arts. you know, it was a, the, the story piece of it, because even in animation, I mean, you're telling, you know, as an animator, you're telling the story of that moment that, you know, that one scene that you're doing so. For me, it was oh, it was just it was an easy transition because I always came from whatever I was doing from that that place of story. You know, it's the story idea that we're trying to communicate here. You know, Toontown, we're we're telling the story of you know the the place where the the, the characters live, and then each of them had their own little story that was part of the bigger story. Um, and um, as I said early on too, I I love to draw so. And drawing, and fortunately, you know, animation, and especially the training that we got at CalArts was was very academic, very formal training in terms you had to learn um, <clears throat> perspective. We had to learn design, color, you know, life drawing. I remember for the first two years of the program, we I, we had life drawing two or three times times a week. So whether you liked it or not, you really learned how to draw and how to design. And I think looking back, those were, amazing, indispensable tools, um, you know, that I still, that I still use to today, you know, the, 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 the physical tool may be different, you know, going from paper and pen and, and watercolor and pen and whatever to, you know, a, a digital tablet with, with different programs. But I mean, it still takes all the same, same brain, brain thinking and the knowledge behind how, you know, how you how you uh, express yourself and how you put it, put it down in, in whatever form, whether electronic or, or, um, or analog. So um, yeah. So that transition, it, I looking back, it seemed very natural. It was just applying all those things I've learned in just a different, in a different, um, in different arena.
0: Speaking of Toontown, I kind of heard that one of the reasons that Disney wanted to uh, do Toontown is because they had a need of trying to, have somewhere for people to go to interact with the characters, and specifically Mickey Mouse, was is that—is that kind of oh, yeah. some oh, yeah. truth that behind was,
1: that? Oh, that, that, that was the absolute driving force behind it, yeah. I mean, there was no, up until Toontown, um, it was just kind of random whether or not you'd have a moment with a character, because they had the characters walking around the park. But actually... Just prior to Toontown, both at Walt Disney World and at Disneyland, they did special events. Um, The one at Walt Disney World was Mickey's Birthday Land, I think it was called. And I can't remember what the one at Disneyland was called. But in both of them, there was a component of it that had a formal meet and greet where you could line up and meet the characters. And of course, it was hugely popular. So it was based on that that they decided on the, the the popularity of being able to see the characters having a guaranteed moment with the characters. That was really the the impetus behind Disneyland um, doing Toontown. And initially, Toontown was just going to be that little little neighborhood where you where you, you know we have Don you know, Donald's boat, Goofy's house, um, the little coaster, Mickey's house of course, and uh, Minnie's house. And um, the centerpiece, of course, of all of it was going to be the the meet Mickey experience. And we really wanted to create kind of a more than just lining up and seeing the character. That's why you get to walk through his home. We set up the whole idea of the backyard movie barn, that he's making the movies back there. And that you actually get to visit him on the set of him making the movie. Because zooming out the bigger, of course, the bigger idea, bigger story is that, you know, you are living the life of a tune. You are getting to be a cartoon character and see the way they live, work and play so um yeah and then then of course once uh that, as i mentioned earlier was the michael eisner jeffrey katzenberg regime and they knew they had something special with roger rabbit and michael eisner saw roger rabbit as his mickey mouse that's he he thought that that was going to be the character you know that you know Walt created mickey he created roger rabbit or at least you know championed roger rabbit and so that's why at that time they were putting a lot of energy both behind the movie and then after the movie they did a number of shorts and then that's why they went ahead and while we were we were kind of halfway done with the design of toontown when they came in and asked us to do the the roger rabbit piece of it kind of the downtown area and at first i was like oh these aren't i don't understand you know they're they're kind of from a little you know, kind of different universes you know it's all cartoon and it's all hand drawn and the the look was kind of like but but in the end it was the absolute right thing to do because it was a great ying to the yang of the the mickey stuff the downtown which was kind of more kind of safe and suburban and then if you remember from the movie toontown kind of had this edge to it so kind of creating this kind of warehousey looking district where where roger rabbit and those characters lived i felt you know kind of created a great counterpoint to what we were doing so the upshot is in the end i i I felt like it was really the right thing to do and the the finished product really benefited more from having you know that influence in there and not just the mickey piece of it
0: so let's talk about the roger rabbit ride it's an interesting ride because it's kind of that classic dark ride but with a totally different spin on it.
1: Literally, <laughs> that was <laughs> that was the di- that was literally the difference. Uh, in fact, at the time, um, and I think it was Tony Baxter who challenged us to find, you know, what's the thing that's going to make it different from the other dark rides? Because I think at the time there were five other dark rides: they had Pinocchio, Snow White, Peter Pan, Mister Toad, and Alice, right. So the question was. You know, how is our dark dark ride going to be different from those? So there were a few things we thought about, you know, and, and kind of just building on the whole idea, the bigger idea of Toontown that you get you, you know, it's not, you have agency. It's not a passive experience of just, you know, getting in a ride vehicle or walking around and experiencing things around you. You know, in Toontown, you got to, you know, open doors and, you know, look inside you know the little the factory door and you know the, the mailboxes talk to you and the you know the whole place was alive so continuing that whole idea we said well if we're going to do a dark ride it's got to be immersive and like fully immersive and that's we we came up with the idea of the you know allowing you to actually spin spin the vehicle so it had it had a couple different components to it. it kind of had a little bit of a thrill component it had the interactive component and then we had the more traditional, you know, storytelling dark ride component that kind of set it apart from the uh, the other dark rides that existed in the park at the
0: time. Another area of Disneyland that Joe worked on was an area that's been in the news quite a bit lately, and that is Critter Country. Yeah,
1: again, um, that was, you know, Tony bringing me in uh, again to bring that, Kind of animation kind of uh I initially uh they had done a most of the work on the ride was was pretty far along when I got involved, so they just had me working on a lot of the stuff for the area development, you know how to how to you know kind of bring a little whimsy and fun to it. I created these like really fun um benches and little critter houses, and I came up with a lot of the signage and stuff for the area um yeah, um, and that 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 predates Toontown. Um, and I think I think it was on the strength of the work I did there, part part of the strength work that I did there, that got me the assignment for Toontown. Mm-hmm.
0: Every Disney park has that Disney magic and brings something unique to the table, but obviously Disneyland is the original Magic Kingdom. It's it's Walt's baby, and it really set a standard for theme parks going forward given all your experience there what is it that you took away from that that maybe you used going into other projects at disney and even after your time at disney imaginary
1: well i think you just said it there was a standard and i always tried to remember you know what what it was about disneyland or what it is about disneyland although it's changed a little bit um, what at the core was was the appeal why people went, and and I think it's it, it's pretty simple. It Breaks down to just a few things. You know, of course, of course everybody wants, it's entertainment. You know, people want to be entertained. Um, but there were there were two other things. There was escapism, um, and optimism about the, the part. Walt was an, an incredibly optimistic guy. I, ne- I never met him, but I um, I was fortunate enough to work with a lot of the people that did know him and did work with him, in particular, John Hench, um, who worked very closely with Walt. And I was fortunate. John worked well into his 90s um, at Imagineering. And every chance I had, I would go in, and sit with John. And I remember John telling me, he said, you know, Walt would just, you know, nothing would set him back. If there, if there was a setback, he said, Walt would come back the next morning with three or four other ideas of how to address whatever the setback was or whatever the challenge was. And, um, and I think that was not only a part of, of Walt's personality and, and his growing up in, in the Midwest and overcoming the challenges that, that, that were thrown at him growing up and, um, and even early on in his career. Um, and even if you, you know, if you study his, his life, you know, he, he had a number of early failures, but he just kept moving forward. You know, he always, he said, okay, fine, I'll try something else. Um, and so that, I think that that idea of optimism and that idea of escapism and that idea of, um, entertainment, I always, I always tried to put that at the core of whatever I did because, um, and great storytelling, of course. And I think those four components, um, And if you I think if you look across the body of of my work, um, if you scratch down below the surface, I think that's kind of what's what's there. And at least what I always tried to to um, get my teams to rally around.
0: All right. So uh, one last question. Do you have a favorite spot at Disneyland? Doesn't have to be an attraction or, you know, whatever. It just a, a spot that you like to go to if you're in the park
1: yes and it's it's in the it's at um the it's in well what was bear country now critter country um there's a little spot back at the back of that i don't even know if it's there anymore it might have been moved because they created that walkway to get into star Mm -hmm. into the galaxy's edge you know i have i've only been there once since galaxy's edge opened but um, for me, um, one of the most amazing one of the most amazing immersive environments created at Disneyland was Frontierland. I mean, it, this was an orange grove in the middle of nowhere, and they brought you to the great outdoors. And here's, a, you know, a Mississippi steamship coming by and the Columbia coming by, and people in canoes. And you can look across the way and see the little burning cabin and I mean it was just filled with storytelling and immersiveness and I I would have to I would sit there and remind myself that you know just probably a few hundred yards behind me is a parking lot yet at that moment I'm completely immersed in this this outdoor frontier world <laughs> and I remember that even as a kid that was one of the, the most striking pieces of the park I mean I loved you know Tomorrowland I love Fantasyland but there was just something about you know the 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 fact that they it was, it's a real world thing you know fantasy land of course is this fantasy world tomorrow land is this imagined you know look at t- tomorrow but that was this real world thing that they created that was so convincing you know and um and like i say even to this day although i haven't been there in a while it, i i'll always search out that that little corner and sit there and just allow myself to be immersed in, you know, in the great outdoors for a moment, knowing that I'm actually sitting in what once was a, an orange grove in, in Anaheim.
0: Well, Joe, I, I know I kept you a little long, but, um, I really, really appreciate you taking some time for me. Um, I, I enjoyed the conversation and, um, hopefully maybe down the line, we'll get to talk again sometime.
1: Okay. Fantastic. I'm happy to have, uh, had the time with you today. I Really appreciate it, Jonathan.
0: All right, thank you, and uh, stay safe and take care.
1: Yes, you too. Bye bye.
0: So once again, I want to I want to thank Joe Land Cicero. Uh, definitely has a lot of interesting insight, and I really really enjoyed the conversation with him. I hope you did as well. That's going to bring us to the segment we do every episode here on the Upon a Dream podcast, where we take a closer look at a certain area or attraction of the park. This time, let's go ahead and take a look at Frontierland. It's time to take an in depth look, it's time for a walk in the park. Frontierland. It is here that we experience the story of our country's past, the color, romance, and drama of Frontier America as it's developed from wilderness trails to roads, riverboats, railroads, and civilization. A tribute to faith, courage, and ingenuity of our hardy pioneers who blazed trails and made this progress possible. That's the original dedication of Frontierland from Walt Disney himself on July 17th, 1955. Frontierland was one of the original five lands at Disneyland. It's set around the 1840s of the Wild West. It's home to four attractions. The entrance to Frontierland is just off the left side of the hub in front of the castle. You enter Frontierland through a fort of ponderosa pines. As you walk through, the buildings change from forts to more modern structures. If you look down at the ground, you'll see imprints of tracks and horseshoe prints. One of the things that stands out in Frontierland is, of course, Tom Sawyer Island, now known as Pirate's Lair. Tom Sawyer Island was probably the one thing in Disneyland that was most inspired by Walt Disney. In fact, he did the design himself and was quoted as saying, I put in all the things I wanted to do as a kid. In 2007, it was renamed to Pirate's Lair and catered towards more the Pirates of the Caribbean franchise, which became popular during the mid-2000s. Two of the other attractions in Frontierland, of course, go around Tom Sawyer Island, or Pirate's Lair. That would be the Mark Twain Riverboat, and the Columbia. The Columbia is a three-mast windjammer. The ship debuted in 1958 and can hold 300 people on board. There's also 10 guns on the Columbia, and the highest mast is 84 feet high. On February 22nd, 1964, the lower deck of the Columbia was opened, uh, which now serves as a pirate and maritime museum. The Mark Twain is the highest in the pecking order of all the water vessels that go around Tom Sawyer Island, including the rafts, the canoes and of course, the Columbia, Mark Twain had her maiden voyage on July 13th, 1955, just four days before Disneyland officially opened. This was for a private party celebrating Walt and Lillian Disney's 30th wedding anniversary. When the Mark Twain debuted in 1955, it was one of the most popular attractions at Disneyland. It's carried well over 115 million passengers to date. The riverboat is 28 feet high 105 feet long and weighs over 150 tons a trip on the mark twain riverboat lasts approximately 15 minutes now there is one other attraction in frontierland that is considered probably one of the biggest thrill rides in the entire park originally it was called the mine train through nature's wonderland It was part of an extension of the Rainbow Caverns Mine Train, which opened in 1956. However, due to the rise in popularity for thrill rides, Nature's Wonderland was closed in 1977 to make way for a new attraction, which of course still stands there today. That's the Big Thunder Mountain Railroad, which opened in 1979. Alrighty folks! Please keep your hands and arms inside the train and
1: remain seated at all times. Now then, hang on to them hats and glasses because this here's the wildest ride in the wilderness.
0: When you go on Big Thunder Mountain Railroad, there's actually several remnants still left over from the mine train through Nature's Wonderland. A lot of the props and even the vehicles are from the original attraction. In 2014... Big Thunder got a major overhaul with a new track and an enhanced audio system. Since opening in 1979, the Big Thunder Mountain Railroad at Disneyland has carried over 225 million guests, and in fact, it's the most efficient ride in all of Disneyland. Another popular area of Frontierland is the Frontierland Shooting Exposition. Disneyland actually featured several different shooting galleries in its earlier years, but the most popular one was the one in Frontierland which opened in July 1957 and still operates today. Today the scenery depicts the old west town of Tombstone, Arizona around the year 1850. The gallery includes a jail, a hotel, bank, stables, a graveyard. All in all, there's approximately 100 targets in the shooting gallery. Finally, one of the most unique features in any Disney park in the world is the petrified tree in Frontierland. Now, this tree was purchased by Walt Disney originally as a wedding anniversary gift for his wife Lillian But she wasn't too fond of the tree herself. She ended up later donating it to Disney. And it's still in Frontierland in Disneyland Park to this day. What's notable about the tree is it is approximately 55 to 70 million years old. Making it the oldest thing not only in Disneyland Park but in any Disney park in the entire world. When you consider attractions like the Mark Twain Riverboat, and in particular, Tom Sawyer Island, now known as Pirate's Lair, it's safe to say that Frontierland was probably one of the most influenced lands by Disney himself. So once again, as Wald explained, Frontierland. It is here that we experience the story of our country's past, the color, romance, and drama of frontier. America as it's developed from wilderness trails to roads, riverboats, railroads, and civilization. A tribute to faith, courage, and ingenuity of our hearty pioneers who blazed trails and made this progress possible. Well, that's going to do it for this episode of the Upon a Dream podcast. Thanks so much for making time. Again, if you want to get caught up on some of the previous podcasts, you can go to the website, upondreampod.com. And, of course, connect with the podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Just search for Upon a Dream Podcast. Next time, we will talk about sound design within the parks and specifically Disneyland with a former Imagineer. But until then, I'm Jonathan Glissmeyer, and this is the Upon a Dream Podcast.